you have your Bible this morning, you can open it to 1 Samuel chapter 20. Uh, before I get there, let's just take a moment and uh, remember and pray uh, for the uh, churches around the country, but the church in Charleston, South Carolina, of course, from this past week. I was watching a little bit this morning. It's amazing the day and age we live in, able to watch live on my phone as I was waiting for the service, the, the service that was going on there this morning, and hear a bit of the pastor's words and hear their faithful trust in God in the midst of difficult, trying times. To hear already of family members extending forgiveness, extending grace and mercy to Dylan Roof, the shooter, praying for him, living out their gospel faith in the midst of a difficult time. So we pray for that church. We pray for the families. The families of Reverend Clementa, Pinnicky, Twanza Standers, Cynthia Hurd, Reverend Sharonda Coleman Singleton, Myra Thompson, Ethel Lance, Reverend Daniel Simmons, Reverend DePayne Middleton Doctor, and Susie Jackson. Father, we come before you this morning recognizing that we live in a broken world, recognizing that it is not the world you once created, it is not the world that one day will be, but it is the world right now we live in between the garden and the second coming. And when these things come, we don't understand them, Lord, we should not understand them. Sin and evil does not make sense. It should not make sense to us. But as we live in this world, we recognize that you are the God who enters the story. You are, Lord, present in this world. And so we ask that you would move in the midst of this pain and that you would perform a Romans 8:28 in the midst of this to bring good out of evil for those who are putting their trust and love in you today to work all things together for good. Father, we pray this morning for peace, for grace and mercy upon this church, upon these families, upon this community. Father, we pray for children on a very difficult Father's Day. We pray for spouses. Father, we pray for parents who grieve this morning. Lord, we ask that you would give them your strength, that your blessing would be heavy upon them, Lord. Father, we ask for this church that you would strengthen them, that they would be granted the privacy they need to walk with each other and grieve, even though the world wants to watch but even in the midst of that watching, that you would be glorified in the midst of it. Father, your word teaches us to pray for our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We lift up Dylan Roof today. Ask that you would, Lord, touch that young man, that you would convict him and draw him to yourself with your love. Father, it's your will that none should perish. So, Lord, we pray for him this morning as well. 
God, would your grace be over this entire situation? We ask for your protection over churches. We ask for unity in our country over the issues that divide us, Lord. Help us to love one another. Father, I pray that at Mount Hope, for us, that you would help us to be witnesses of your love, not only for us, but our love for one another. Lord, that you would help us to better love each other, regardless of the color of skin or race or nationality or ethnicity. Lord, would you um, give us the strength to do that, Father? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I mentioned, if you have your Bibles this morning, <clears throat> we'll get into God's Word in 1 Samuel chapter 20. Of course, we continue to pray for those families in Charleston it's, and look for whatever way that we can... Um, Work for peace in our own place and where we live in God's name and as a witness to Jesus and his love in us. So we move into 1 Samuel chapter 20 this morning. <clears throat> Thinking about the graduates today that came before us, those that graduated this year. <clears throat> makes me think about opportunities and decisions that will come the way of these graduates and that come many of our ways. But particularly when you graduate, you have a decision to make what you're going to do next, where you're going to go, what your next step is going to be. At times in my life, uh, certain times in ministry, there are people who might approach me and ask me in the midst of their decision to, to help them and pray for them, to seek God's will in the midst of decisions that they might have to make. Sometimes a choice of what job to pursue or maybe not pursue or where to live or where not to live. I often tell people that approach me with this with difficult decision, even when they're, they're trying often to do what God wants them to do and seek God's will and wanting nothing more than to please God in the midst of it, and yet it's so difficult. And I often will tell people, this difficulty is to be expected. It's going to come in your life. Often when someone's sitting before me, I'll tell them, you're a gifted person. You've worked hard. You have skills and gifts that God has given to you. You're a person of integrity. You show up on time. You work hard. And if you do that in our world, you're often going to have multiple opportunities that come your way at one time or another. And so you'll have difficult decisions to make. But I also tell them that the reason why it's so tough is because when you have a decision to make, saying yes to one thing isn't what's difficult. Often if we think about that, that's not hard to say yes to one thing. What makes the decision so difficult is that saying yes often means saying no to at least one thing and sometimes many different things. And that's what makes the decision Difficult. The pain is caused by the fact that we can't do everything or please everyone. Every yes involves many no's. Yes to a high-profile job working on Wall Street in New York City might mean no to living close to home and being near your parents. 
Yes to staying close to home and taking care of aging parents might mean no to the next promotion or to a higher pay scale. Yes to a bigger house might mean no to the quaint neighborhood and neighbors you've come to love. Yes to the job might mean no to more school. Yes to this boy means no to all the other boys in the world. Yes to that girl means no to all the other girls in the world. Your yes often implies and carries with it many no's. Your decision, and if I could put it another way in light of this morning's message, your loyalty to one choice will cost you something with other choices. And I want to talk to you this morning about a message called Unexpected Loyalties. Unexpected Loyalties. It's a message that comes out of 1 Samuel chapter 20 and particularly about a man named Jonathan. Jonathan found out certainly and very personally that saying yes and being loyal to one thing and in this particular case one person was going to cost him something. It was going to cost him something very close to him. Last week, we talked about envy and Saul's unexpected envy of David. Today, we focus on Saul's son, Jonathan, and his unexpected loyalty to David. Today, we focus on Saul's son. It's unexpected that he would be loyal to David for the same reason that Saul's envy was unexpected. It makes little sense when it's viewed from a human perspective alone. Jonathan was the crown prince. He was next in line to the throne held by his father, King Saul. His course had been set out for him. It was laid out very clearly that when Saul died, Jonathan, the crown prince, would then without doubt and without question, become the next king of Israel. All he had to do was pretty much keep his mouth shut, do what his father said, and he would become the next king. But Jonathan knew otherwise, and Jonathan chose otherwise, because he knew that that wasn't God's plan, even though it was his father's plan. And so David one day comes to Jonathan. David, by the way, is at least 27 years younger than Jonathan. We sometimes think that Jonathan and David were pals playing out on the playground together in the same age. But uh, if you look at the chronology and what's in the scriptures and dates that are put there, David has to be at least 27 years younger than Jonathan. So not only is he the crown prince, but he's also his elder and would seem to be more appropriate in line for the throne. But David comes to Jonathan one day and he says, your father is trying to kill me and Jonathan doesn't believe him. Jonathan says, you know, my father doesn't do anything without telling me. If he were trying to kill you, I would certainly know about it. So Jonathan says, well, I mean, David says, well, we'll put out a little test. In a couple days, there's a festival that I'm expected to attend. David's expected to attend. And so if I don't show up, let's see how your father Saul responds. If he doesn't make a big deal out of it, then he's not angry at me, and he doesn't mean to kill me, and everything's fine. 
But if he gets angry at my lack of presence, then you know that he means to cause me harm. Jonathan agrees to this plan, and in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20, I want to read to you the commitment that Jonathan and David make to each other. They make a commitment, but it's not just a commitment, it's a covenant. Covenant is more than a contract. Covenant is an agreement between two parties, sometimes two uh, humans, uh, oftentimes in the scriptures between God and human, a, a person, uh, but sometimes between two people, and a covenant is it's, it's agreement that says, I have responsibilities to carry out. You have responsibilities to carry out. If one of us doesn't meet them, then there are blessings and curses that are associated with the covenant. If we fulfill our responsibilities, let the blessings come down. If we fail to fulfill them, let the curses fall upon us. And a covenant is also made before God Almighty that if I do not fulfill this covenant, may God himself hold me responsible to it. And so David and Jonathan, then Jonathan said to David, by the Lord God of Israel, right? This is covenant before God. By the Lord God of Israel, I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed toward you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father is inclined to harm you, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, those are the curses coming down on the covenant. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away safely. So Jonathan has coveted with David to give him safe passage away if Saul does intend to harm him. Send you away safely. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And this is David's part of the covenant. But show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. That's quite a statement, right? Because what he's saying in there right now, who would David's enemies be from the face of the earth? Jonathan's father. He's saying, look, if my father means to do you harm, may God himself wipe him out. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account and Jonathan and David had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. So from this point on, what happens is David and Jonathan come up with a plan. Jonathan's going to go to the feast where everyone's expected to attend. And when Saul sees that David's seat is empty, we'll see what his response is. What happens, and then what's going to happen is Jonathan gave David a signal. He said, look, if his response is good, here's how you'll know. Go hide in the field, and I will come out and practice my archery, and I will have the, the, the servant with me that usually retrieves my arrows. And when I shoot the arrow, if I say, you know, it's beside you. The arrow is beside you. Come closer. That means it's okay. You can come, you can come home. My father means you no harm. <clears throat> but if I shoot the arrow and I yell out to the servant, the arrow is beyond you, that'll be a sign to you that my father means you harm and he means to kill you and you need to leave. And that's the signal that they worked out, and David and Jonathan and David agreed to it. So they go to the feast, and on the first day, Saul doesn't make a big deal out of it, but on the second day, 
He's upset that David's not there. And 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 30 says this, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse, that's David, by the way, if you haven't, as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. So he, he, he fills him out, and, and, he, and his father obviously is angry. He, tell, he, he tells Jonathan, you know, he calls him names, calls his mother names. Um, he, he can't even say the name of David. You see, John, uh, Saul doesn't even use the name of David. It reminds me of the, sometimes a parent that gets mad, you know, gets mad at their kid, and, and then the spouse comes home and says, do you know what your son did today? Like, you can't even utter the name. And Saul is like, he won't even say David. He's like the son of Jesse. And he's so mad, he's so upset that he actually hurls his spear at Jonathan and tries to kill him. So Jonathan goes out. David's hiding in the field. He shoots the arrow. And he tells his servant boy that was fetching them. He says, run and find the arrows as I shoot. And then he tells him, isn't the arrow beyond you? And of course, David hears that. Then Jonathan follows it up with these additional words. Hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy is confused. He doesn't know what's going on, but he just picks up the arrows and comes back to Jonathan and then Jonathan sends him away. And then when it is only Jonathan and David standing alone in that field, Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. Jonathan, in this passage, chooses a loyalty to David over and above his father. Jonathan's peace with David caused a lack of peace with his father, Saul. Jonathan's loyalty to David created conflict with Saul. Your covenant, your allegiance, your loyalty to God as a Christian, if you've chosen to follow Jesus and make him the Lord of your life, your allegiance to Jesus, your call to follow God will necessarily create conflict with certain people. If you choose to follow God and you choose to make Jesus the Lord of your life, or if you've done that already, your decision to do that will inevitably and necessarily create conflict and a lack of peace with certain people in this world and in your life. And according to this passage in particular, it'll create conflict with two kinds of people in particular. And let me give them to you this morning. Two kinds of people. There are others that following Christ might create conflict with, but just according to this passage this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 20, there are at least two kinds of people that following Jesus, following God, being loyal to him and your commitment to him will necessarily create conflict with. And the first is this. Your covenant loyalty to God 
will create conflict with people who are in opposition to God. It may seem simple. It may seem logical and obvious, but it must be stated because when it happens, it still seems to take us by surprise. That when someone else is in opposition to God and you choose to follow God, you're on opposite sides of the issue and it will necessarily create conflict. It's a little bit like, as I thought about this as an example, uh, the best I could think of in a trivial way is the Red Sox and Yankees fans before the Red Sox won the World Series. If you didn't live here prior to 2004, you really don't maybe know what I'm talking about because something has changed since they won the World Series. There was something that happened. There was something going on in the 1990s and the early 2000s that I can't explain because I can't explain it because it makes no sense. It was ridiculous, the amount of adversity between these two sports fans. That doesn't seem to exist as much now. And you were automatically in opposition to someone just because of the uniform of the team they might have chaired for. And it's trivial, but in the similar way, it's best I can say that there are some people who are going to be just in opposition for you for no other reason than you have chosen to serve God, than you have chosen to follow God. They may like everything else about you. They may have been good friends with you before you made the decision. But your decision to follow Jesus will necessarily create some conflict. If you've chosen to follow Jesus, you found out pretty quickly that there were some people who were excited for you. They'd been waiting for you to make the commitment. They, maybe they'd been praying for you. But then there were others who were like, good for you. You know, that's good for you. That's fine. Not for me. But then maybe there were others who tried to talk you out of it. And then maybe others who were opposed to it people who don't believe God exists or maybe even believe God exists but are completely opposed to him. And you say, how could such a creature exist that believes God exists and yet opposes him? The Bible says in James that the demons believe in God and yet they don't serve him. And there are people, even in the earth, who believe that God exists and yet they are in opposition to him for one reason or another. For others, for people, they will endeavor to live their lives knowing God exists but pretending that he does not. This is the person who in their mind has a good reason for being opposed to God often. Perhaps they blame God for something awful that happened to them as a child for not protecting them as a child, for, not, for allowing someone they loved to die, or for not doing what they wanted in response to a prayer they prayed. There often sometimes is something in the background that causes them even to believe that God exists but be completely opposed to him. And if you are going to follow God, you can expect at some point they're going to oppose you as well. Saul had a problem with Jonathan simply and solely because Jonathan had a positive relationship with David. Other than this one single issue, as far as we know, there was no other reason for Saul to dislike Jonathan. Saul's anger was brought about strictly based on the fact that Jonathan loved David and was loyal to him. When you decide to follow Jesus, don't be surprised 
if there are people who start to disassociate themselves with you for no other reason than your relationship with God. If you're going to be a follower of God and love him, then they may not want to be around you. Paul talks about this in his letters in the New Testament. He says there are some people, when you get around them, you're going to stink to them. This is the, this is the metaphor that he uses. That to some who are following God, you're going to be a sweet smell, but to others who choose not to follow God, you will be a stench. You're the smell of death Paul says to them. So I tell you that to say don't be surprised that when you choose to follow God and and choose peace with God that you may find a lack of peace with other people and certainly with some who oppose God. But let me move on to the second particular thing in this passage that your covenant loyalty to God will create conflict with. It will create conflict with people who are in opposition to God. But secondly, your covenant loyalty to God will create conflict with people who expect loyalty to them to come before any other loyalty in your life. Your covenant loyalty to God will create conflict with people who expect loyalty to them to come before every other loyalty in your life. Saul tried to kill his son Jonathan because he expected Jonathan to be true to him and his plan above anything else in life. As any king would, Saul demanded full allegiance from Jonathan as his son and as his subject. And when Saul declared that someone was an enemy of the state or an enemy of himself personally, he expected everyone in his kingdom and everyone under his command to also consider that person an enemy and to carry out his bidding. By entering into a covenant with David, Jonathan was giving his allegiance to someone other than the king and his father, And that was a problem for a king and a father who demanded allegiance to himself above everyone and everything else. Good point on Father's Day. Good questioning point for those of us who are fathers in your house as you lead. Are you demanding more allegiance to yourself? Or are you pointing your children to have their full loyalty and allegiance to God? If there's anyone in your life who expects loyalty to them to supersede every other loyalty in your life, then your decision to follow Jesus and put God first above everything in your life is necessarily going to, at some point, bring you into conflict with them. Sometimes this conflict will manifest itself in outright anger, like Saul. It might sound like, I forbid you to go to church. Or be with Christians or follow Jesus. Other times it might be more subtle and can take the form of guilt. Fine, after all I did for you, now you're abandoning me. Or it can take the form of shame. I'm embarrassed of you. I won't even talk to my friends about what you're doing or where you're going. Paul used, uh, Saul used both guilt and shame with Jonathan tried to guilt him in the fact that he was his son and tried to shame him by saying he was bringing shame on his mother who birthed him. Those of you who have come to Christ out of another religion that your family was heavily involved in know what I'm talking about here. 
This seems especially true of people I've talked to who have left the Hindu religion, that we have some in our church who have come to Christ from that religion. And many times when I talk to someone who's come out of a Hindu religion or chosen to follow Jesus and whose family is still Hindu, they know what Jonathan is experiencing by giving his allegiance to David. Because for a Hindu religion, they have no problem saying that Jesus is a god. They serve hundreds of millions of gods. And to say that Jesus is a god is not a problem. The problem comes when you want to say Jesus is the one and the only God, the way to heaven. There is no other way but through him. And all the other things that you worship are idols and not gods. That's where the problem comes. And so when a person leaving a Hindu religion or another religion that is heavily connected with their family says, I am now going to follow Christ as the one and only God, they know that they are inevitably entering conflict with their family because their family demands loyalty to their religion and demands loyalty to their family. And in that moment, they may be knowing that they are making a decision to be abandoned by their family, to be banished by their family, to be disinherited from their family, and to be considered as not even a part of the family. And yet the decision is still made, and the many that I've talked to who have made the decision said that they would make it again, even though it costs them much. For others, it may not be converting out of another religion, but simply putting your faith in God and putting God before family and friends in your life that caused conflict or will cause conflict. What do you mean you're going to church instead of coming to our events? Are you going to show up late because you have to go to church? You go to church too much. You went last week. I think God will understand. You're going to miss your second cousin's wife's stepdaughter's boyfriend's birthday party because you have to go to a church meeting? What are you, some kind of religious nut or fanatic? You're going to leave me while you go to church? I thought you cared about me. Conflict with people who demand loyalty to themselves above loyalty to anything else in their life. It'll necessarily cause conflict. Young men and women who are dating, be careful about getting into a relationship with a person who expects your allegiance to them above your loyalty to God. This is one of the reasons why the Bible says to marry someone who is also a Christian. I would take this and extend it not only from marriage but back to dating. I do subscribe to the date your mate philosophy. Why spend the time dating someone and investing all the emotional energy into dating someone and getting to know someone you know you won't, cannot, and should not marry? So get it out on the table right out in front. Talk about God and make it clear that you not only believe in God, but that commitment is going to come before every other commitment in your life, even your commitment to your spouse. It can certainly happen in marriage. Maybe you have already married someone who's not a Christian or they said they were a Christian in order to get you to marry them. God says that except in a very few exceptional circumstances, you need to stay faithful to your marital vows and stay married to them. But your commitment to God 
above your commitment to them will still necessarily cause conflicts in your relationship. So your loyalty to God will cause conflict with certain other people. It will certainly cause conflict with people who are opposed to God, and it will cause conflict with people who expect loyalty to themselves above God. This is going to happen when you follow Jesus as your one and only God. You can count on it. Don't be surprised when conflict comes because of your choice to follow Jesus. You heard it here. It's the logical result of complete devotion to Jesus. Your choice of peace with God will inevitably cause a lack of peace with some people. However, I want to close with this this morning. Whatever your loyalty to God costs you with others, it will always be overshadowed by God's loyalty and faithfulness to you. Whatever your loyalty, covenant love to God costs you with others, it will always be overshadowed by God's loyalty, faithfulness, and covenant love to you. This was certainly true for Jonathan, true for Jonathan, though it's not in this particular passage that we see David's faithfulness to Jonathan. In this passage, all we see is Jonathan's faithfulness to David, but David will get his opportunity to make good on his covenant a little bit later on. And if you have your Bible, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9 to what I think is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. It is certainly what I think one of the most beautiful passages in all of the Old Testament because it is David's opportunity to make good on his covenant to Jonathan. Because later, Jonathan and Saul will both be killed in battle. And David will ascend to the throne, just as God said that he would. And in that moment, no one but David and God will know about his covenant with Jonathan. And what will he do? Will he remember his covenant that he made to his friend Jonathan so many years before? Will he consider that covenant invalid since Saul tried to kill him again and again and again? And in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we're told after David has ascended to the throne, David asked, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And I look at that and I say, are you kidding me? This man who has been on the run from Saul, who's been trying to kill him as an innocent man, Saul's tried to kill him, and when he comes to power and has the opportunity, he does not do what every other king would do. See, every other king would call for, the, for the, any family members that were living of the previous king, but he'd call for them so he could kill them to make sure there were no one, no one living who could contend for his throne. So they would kill off all the members of the previous monarchy's family. David, on the other hand, calls and he says, is there anyone left in the house of Saul who I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? Eventually, they find a servant called Ziba and he says, is there no one left in the house of Saul whom I can show kindness for? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. 
Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Maker, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Maker, son of Amiel. And he sends for him, Mephibosheth, who's crippled in both feet. And the reason he's crippled is because when the, his nurse was fleeing, when, when that kingdom was under attack, his nurse took him and he was fleeing and she dropped him. And when she dropped him, his feet uh, were broken and they were crippled. And he lived his life crippled, hiding in Lodabar because he knew when a new king came to power that because his father was Jonathan, that he would be killed. And so I don't know, we don't know what those years looked like, but we can imagine he's hiding as a fugitive, just hoping no one figures out who he is, just hoping no one figures out who he's related to, and that he can just live out the days of his life in Lodabar. But one day, the knock on the door comes, Mephibosheth, the king, summons you. And he knows the jig is up. And he knows his card's been drawn, the time's up, and he... He's done for. Because if the king is calling for him, it can only be for one reason, and that is to end his life. And so what can he do but go with them? And he goes with them, and he comes into the king's presence. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David. He bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, I love it's an exclamation point and not a question mark. He calls and shouts his name. Mephibosheth says, at your service, he replied. What will David say? Don't be afraid, David said to him, for surely I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Listen to those words, for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Wait a second. Wait a second. It was supposed to be because my father was Jonathan that I would be killed. What Mephibosheth thought is that because Jonathan was his father, that he was living under a death sentence. What he found out was that because of the covenant love of David, this Christ, which is Messiah, he was the Messiah, he was the savior of the people. He would have been given that title because of David making a covenant with his father, Jonathan. His life is not only spared, but he lives under the king's blessing in the king's house with a seat at the king's table. And it's the same for you and for me. Because of who our father is, Adam, we should be living under a death sentence because Adam sinned and all live under the curse of sin, the Bible tells us. And so because of Adam's sin and sin entering the human race and the human race no longer being perfect the way God created it, no longer being able to enter into God's presence, holy, perfect presence, then we are contaminated. And because of our father, Adam, we live under a death sentence, but for Christ, but for Christ, who came as the perfect sacrifice and in God's covenant love 
chose us to lay down his life. And the Bible calls him, Jesus, the second Adam. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you are no longer the son of the first Adam. You are the son of the second Adam. And your life is spared because of the covenant love of God. And just like Mephibosheth, you get a seat at the king's table because of the grace of God that has been extended to you. So though choosing to follow God and being loyal to God will cost you something with people, I would argue that the blessings of God far outshadow and outweigh what it will cost you in this world. That that covenant love of God for you forgiving you and erasing the death sentence that you and I lived under. This is the God that we serve. So what about you as we close? Do you ever elevate relationships in this world over your loyalty and commitment to God? It is the most unexpected loyalty. Not Jonathan to David and not David to Jonathan but the most unexpected loyalty is the loyalty of a covenant loving God to sinful men and women. That that is the unexpected loyalty. That God would be faithful to his side of the covenant even when we were not faithful to ours. That God would be faithful and just to forgive us our sins based on our faith and trust in Jesus Christ even when we were not living for him. For even when we rejected him and lived as his enemy, committed sins in our life against God, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He loved us while we hated him. He waited for us even while we went on without him. He died for us even when we were not living for him. And if you will love him and enter into covenant loyalty with him, it will cost you with other people. It will cost you with other people in your life and in this world. But what you gain will far outshine what it may cost you with others. Chuon is to share that uh, quote from Jim Elliott is still true. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I ask our music ministry to come back. We're going to close in prayer. Just before I close in prayer, let me say one final word to fathers on this Father's Day, particularly from this passage. Saul was a father who chose to build his kingdom over doing God's will. That loyalty to himself and his kingdom cost him. It cost him his relationship with his son. It cost him his integrity. It cost him his kingdom. It cost him his life. And it cost him his relationship with God. The very thing he was trying to hang on to so tightly were the very things that he lost because he was not putting God first. Jesus said, if you try to save your life by your own strength, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, in other words, if you will live for Jesus, die to yourself, you will find the life that you are truly looking for. 
So Father, man of God, whose kingdom are you building? And where does your loyalty lie? Whose kingdom are you building and where does your loyalty lie? Because if your loyalty lies in building up your own kingdom and protecting it and building it up and building something to yourself, I fear that in the end you'll be severely disappointed because you will have lost everything that you have worked for. But if you will live your life for God, if you will embrace his covenant love that he gives to you, if you will give away and die to yourself and teach your children and your family to do so as well, then I believe you will find the life that you are looking for and even more, life abundantly. So who are you living for today? Is there any place in your life as you evaluate your own heart where you have elevated peace with people over peace with God? Father, thank you for your word today. God, thank you for your covenant love for us. Thank you for faithfulness to us even when we have been faithless to you. Father, I pray for any man or woman in this room this morning who has been trying to save and protect and build their life and sees it slipping away and realizes today that they cannot, they cannot save and protect and build a kingdom to their self and expect it to last. And if you're in this room this morning and you've never committed your life to God, the offer is there for you this morning. He's never left the table. We walk away. We run away from the offer he makes to us, but he has never left the table and he saved a place for you. And if you will take your life and put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that he will accept you as his child, that he will welcome you at his table and forgive your sins and you will forever be in relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And I encourage you, if you've not done that before, that this morning would be the day. Right now would be the moment that you would say, I no longer want to live under the curse of death, but I want to live under the promise of life through Jesus Christ. And I put my faith and trust in him. Father, I pray that each of us in this room would make that commitment in our lives and that as we do, that your Holy Spirit would come into us and teach us to live for you. Lord, for those of us who have committed to you but have let other people get in the way or have given our loyalty to them above you, may we leave this place today with the courage to live holy for you as our Lord and Savior. In Christ's name, amen. Would you stand and we'll close with this final song of worship today.